Hello and uh, welcome everybody. Uh, thank you for coming to today's uh, panel. My name is Peter Gerlacht. Uh, I'm an adjunct assistant professor of international studies at the University of Iowa. Uh, and I want to first say thank you to uh, our panelists uh, sitting here with me today. First, I want to say to each of you, thank you very much for making the time to be here. Uh, I was, uh, to some extent, uh, very happily uh, surprised that you all were able to make it. You have very busy schedules uh, and to get us all together on, on the stage in the middle of a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so to introduce everybody uh, on, the, on the far end, Joan Vandenberg from uh, the Iowa City School District. Uh, she's the Youth and Family Development Coordinator uh, next to her, Susan Mims, uh, one of the counselors here on City of Iowa City. Uh, next to her, uh, Jeff Ruin, the City of Iowa City City Manager. Uh, next, Jody Matherly, uh, the City of Iowa City Chief of Police. And uh, to my left, uh, Rod Sullivan, the Chair of the Johnson County Board of Supervisors. Uh, again, thank you to all of you for being here today. Uh, this panel is uh, a part of a new service learning course uh, that I'm teaching this semester. Uh, the course is called Community Engaged Learning with Refugees and Immigrants in Iowa. Uh, the students in the class who are here in the audience today uh, learn from and with our community partner, the Refugee and Immigrant Association, an Iowa City-based NGO. Over the course of the term, in small groups, the students serve as consultants and trusted advisors. They will write a report on one aspect of the RIA's mission and work, and then on the last day they'll present their findings to the RIA, explaining how their findings might strengthen the organization's very important work in our community. Today's panel is important because we, as a class and as the larger group here together, gain insights into how members of our community's leadership work with NGOs, like uh, the Refugee and Immigrant Association and others, to welcome and support refugees and immigrants in the area. So thank you all for being here uh, to join us uh, for this conversation. And I'm actually hoping, Jeff, if you might, um, at least for a quick moment, be willing to introduce us to the space that we're in and what generally takes place here, as not all in the audience may have been in such a space like this one. Sure. Again, I'm Jeff Fruin. I'm the city manager here. And welcome to City Hall. Uh, you are in the council chambers. We call Emma Harvitt Hall. Uh, the council chambers are where the city council comes to meet. Uh, we meet twice a month on a regular basis here, and the city council, including uh, Councillor Mims here, uh, meets to uh, set city policy, approve contracts, and take care of other uh, business for the cities. All our meetings are public, so you would always be welcome to come and, and listen to a meeting. We meet on the first and third Tuesdays of the month, uh, starting with a 5 o'clock work session and with a 7 o'clock uh, formal meeting. Uh, the room here is often uh, used for other city boards and commissions and community uh, meetings as well. Uh, so hopefully you get a chance to, to visit us uh, again sometime after today. Yeah, thank you very much. 
Uh, okay, so I have a, a list of uh, prepared uh, questions, and then uh, after we uh, have our conversation as, as a panel, uh, I'm told that there may be a, a pop quiz uh, oh. for the students. <laughs> no, uh. it, it was just a way to share some data that would be a little more engaging than me just yapping <laughs> about it. So well, it could be quiz interesting. Optional. Optional. Okay. Well, that that makes the students feel better. <laughs> uh, and then we'll have a little time for Q and A uh, at the end. So I'd like to first uh, begin by asking you because. Uh, I, I have found uh, the, the work myself to be, uh, on one hand, a very personal thing. So uh, I'm wondering if you all could uh, talk about uh, how do your personal views on immigration inform your, your professional work? Uh, we're here again talking about refugees and immigrants, and your work may not be primarily focused on the topic. But when it does, when it intersects uh, with issues related to refugees and immigrants, uh, how do your personal views uh, on immigration inform that professional work? Uh, any order? No. Uh, go, I'll, go I'll ahead. start out. Sure. Um, so from a from a personal perspective, um, I, I've I found out in life that you know to treat people differently because of who they are or to bully somebody. Um, I never found it acceptable, even when I was growing up. Just couldn't stand it. So as I got into law enforcement, now I've been nearly 37 years, um, that's kind of morphed into my philosophy with policing and with, with law enforcement in general. Um, whether it was uh, my buddy on the playground that was getting bullied or some community member I run across today that's not being treated fairly, um, what you find out is there's people in life and, and people that live in our community that um, have an uphill struggle on any given day. Uh, and when it comes to immig immigrants and refugees, um, sometimes it's language barriers, sometimes it's just cultural differences, uh, sometimes they just don't know where to turn. Um, and so we have to make sure we're very, very sensitive to that and that we address that and come up with creative ways to deal with that. Um, and I make sure that, that the philosophy doesn't just start at my desk. Um, and sometimes that trickles down from community requests or city council policy or whatever the case is, but it goes right down to the very, you know, new officer that I hire and to that staff member that greets you at the front desk. Uh, everybody has to take that philosophy and uh, to, to really be sensitive to, um, to their plight. You know, we, we remind folks, first and foremost, we are a law enforcement agency and we have a job to do, but it doesn't mean we don't have you know shouldn't be compassionate and caring when we carry out our duties um, and use that procedural justice that is the very end we know an arrest or a ticket or even a traffic stop has a negative connotation um, but it's how we get there that makes a difference and when we're dealing with folks that maybe don't understand our culture or or has a language barrier we better be prepared to deal with that so they leave that situation feeling comfortable and feeling confident in the process so that's my take on it. Yeah, thank you very much. And I think that's a, that's a really refreshing uh, thing to hear from the chief of police. And I think is, at least I feel that a lot in, in our community, that it is welcoming. And I've, I've heard many uh, folks describe your officers as adopting that kind of philosophy in their work. I would say for me, um, one of the things that that I remember even at my age that was was really impactful for me was back 
when I was probably 10 or 11 years old, I grew up in the state of Vermont, which for those of you who maybe are not native U.S. citizens, it's in the northeast part of the country, kind of east of the state of New York, a very white, very rural community. And during that time, an African-American minister and his family um, had moved to the state. And I believe there were shots fired at the house. There was a cross burning. And I just remember the impact that that had on me as a, as a 10 or 11-year-old and the conversations that took place in our household of, you know, how wrong that was, how everybody should be treated the same. It doesn't matter where you come from, where your what your religion is, what the color of your skin is, you know, et cetera. And so that was something that was ingrained in me um, from the time I was a little kid and, and growing up um, with my parents. And so as an adult, trying to do what I can to make sure that, and particularly as a city councilor, that we have policies and procedures and support in place for all members of our community and particularly to support those who are most vulnerable is really important. And some of the things that we, we have done as our immigrant and refugee community has grown here are things like supporting more <clears throat> um, English as a second language training. We've, we're providing money to Kirkwood Community College to help them you know, expand their offerings, doing more translation services, um, social and, and racial justice equity grants, things like that. Uh, I would say hiring of Chief Matherly was a, a huge part of that. That was very much an important aspect of the analysis of the candidates that we had for chief of police three plus years ago was what what was their background, what was their demeanor, what was their attitude uh, when it came to policing, uh, whether it's African-Americans, immigrants, et cetera, that not only did they talk the talk, but they really believed it and and lived that and would implement that within within their force. So those are the kinds of things that we try to look at. There's always a balance, particularly when you start attaching dollars to various things, but it's always trying to look at things with what what is the most, you know, everybody has the same human rights and should be treated the same and try to make sure, though, that we can go that extra mile when possible for people who have those extra needs. Um, I guess I'll go next. Um, so this is really um, kind of very, very important to me just as a social worker, because I think social justice and equity is kind of ingrained into any of us who go into social work. So I really feel like it's, it's strong advocacy for our immigrants is very important in a large school district system. So it's individually helping families understand their rights and understanding um, kind of what their niche in our community can be, but it's also working to change our system. And I think that that's the bigger challenge sometimes is making sure that we have translation and interpretation services and that we create an understanding and a partnership between our immigrant community and the educators that work with them because sometimes we don't know what we don't know and assumptions are made. And I think that it's, uh, it's a way we're going to have uh, an equal playing field as if, if we can give them a voice and an opportunity to be involved. So it's, um, it's very personal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I'd, I'd just offer um, one thought, and, and I think everybody realizes that uh, Johnson County, Iowa City is a, is a growing area. Uh, what you may not realize is that the uh, international growth far exceeds the domestic growth. In other words, we're getting more immigrants 
in here than we are getting people relocating from Illinois or Minnesota or within the state of Iowa. And that's really forcing us as, as city officials to take, to take uh, the time to deeply understand what the needs of the immigrant community are. And it's a really, cha it's, a, it's a challenge for us. It's, it's, it's an exciting challenge, but we have to evolve our day-to-day -day operations, the basic um, municipal services that, that we offer uh, to meet the needs um, of, our, of our newest residents. And we take that job very seriously, whether it's uh, parks and recreation activities, uh, evolving those to, to meet the needs of, of people from different cultures with different um, ideas on, on what they want to do for recreation, to uh, bus service, to uh, animal uh, laws. Everything really needs a, a, a good hard review and that's the process that we're in and that's exciting. Um, but everybody needs to be a part of that, um, and we stress that throughout our organization, whether you're picking up trash or you're, you're on the streets uh, policing. And so hopefully um, folks in the community are seeing some changes, and uh, I'm pretty confident you'll continue to see those changes going forward. Jeff, I'm just curious, uh, how, to what extent do you think uh, folks in the community uh, know that fact uh, that you just shared with us that uh, our our newest residents uh, are more international than they are domestic well it probably depends on you know your your day day-to-day -day work if you're a school teacher I think you probably understand it very well um, uh, but uh, you know uh, for a lot of other pr professions where you maybe don't get uh, a full <coughs> exposure to the community. You may not be aware of that. I use, uh, I have maps and statistics that I, sh I show frequently when we make uh, community presentations and I'll often get comments saying, wow, I had no idea the numbers from domestic to international migration were, were, so, were so skewed. I would be grateful actually if you would mind uh, sharing that uh, information uh, with me so I can share it with the class. Uh, Rod? Um, well, so uh, I am probably a little more free than the other people up here to be a little more political, so I'm going to be a little more political. Mm -hmm. um, I think that dating all the way back probably to Neanderthals walking the earth, you know, uh, bad leaders have used immigration as a tool. Um, it's, it's, it's very easy to blame somebody from the outside for our problems. And so whether you're talking, you know, a tiny tribe or the United States as a whole or, or, or a small city or a big city, it's just really easy to blame somebody else, right? If it wasn't for them, everything here would be fine. It also gives you the excuse as a, as a leader, uh, in this case I would say a bad leader, to say, look, look at them, you know, put your attention on them, not on me and what, and what I'm doing as a leader, but put your attention on these other people. It's, you know, they're the problem. And I just don't think that's almost ever the case. I mean, almost ever the case. You know, you just don't, when you really look at things um, in terms of what really happens with immigration in this, on this planet, um, it's not immigrants that cause problems, it's bad leaders that cause problems. And I just think it's a very convenient uh, scapegoat. And just like it happened back in the Crusades and you know, for hundreds and thousands of years, it's still happening today. It's happening all the time today. So it's it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tend to agree with that, actually. 
Um, if we talk uh, about uh, Iowa City uh, more generally, I'm wondering how, uh, and anyone feel free uh, to answer the question, how would you describe the Iowa City area, uh, maybe more broadly and in your specific contexts, um, or even uh, how you see it uh, sort of personally, uh, how would you describe the Iowa area, Iowa City area, in terms of, let's call it refugee and immigrant friendliness? Um, that is, what does our community do well, and uh, what areas or opportunities for improvement do you see? I think I would see, on the, on the areas of improvement, um, I think job opportunities and and because of the language barrier for so many immigrants and refugees, um, one trying to trying to get through that, but I I can't imagine as an adult trying to learn and become fluent in a totally different language, and particularly for a lot of people who are coming from areas that whose language is not at all related to English. So I mean, it's one thing if you know French or Spanish, and you know some of the Romance languages, maybe a little bit more contact. But if you're coming, whether it's from China or you speak Arabic or some of the other languages, trying—I just can't imagine trying to learn Arabic, for example. And so I commend these people who have come here and are making every effort to try to become fluent in English. But when you have that barrier, that language barrier, it makes it very difficult in terms of the job market. And so that you know, goes all the way downhill to then the socioeconomic status and the opportunities for them in terms of housing and, you know, opportunities for their children, et cetera. And so where, where I think as a country and as an area with a, with a high immigration population is trying to do even more and more on the English and on the job training opportunities so that people have that opportunity to provide for themselves and their family in a way that they can feel good about themselves, that, you know, that they're they're able to provide those basic needs without struggling so hard. What is the, what would be the council's role in um, doing exactly that kind of work, making those opportunities more possible? I think that's a real challenge and Jeff maybe can address it a little bit more, but I think, you know, one thing we're doing, I mentioned at the beginning is we're, we're putting more money um, with Kirkwood. I think we've committed $25,000 a year to supplement what they're doing. I think they've added maybe 75 to add more um, English language classes. And this is all for, I believe, all for adults. Um, the, the job training, I would say, doesn't necessarily really fit within our mandate, so to speak, but I, it, I would say we're open to trying to coordinate with people, and again, maybe Jeff can address that a little bit more than I can. Yeah, I, I think for local governments, one thing we've done really well, I think um, the, the county school district, uh, local governments in general um, here have done really well, is express our values, express our um, our desire to be inclusive and welcoming, um, but but that, that only goes so far, that's really important. Um, but we, we need to, to dig deeper and find those programmatic changes that we can do. And Susan just mentioned uh, a very important one that we're a part of with, with the uh, English as a Second Language uh, courses. Um, what, what we've really tried to do and, and where the city council's focus has been is, is starting to create programs that empower the immigrant communities or um, any, any um, uh, subset of the population to, to 
em basically empower themselves, ask the question, what do you need? Because it's hard for us to sit up here and, and understand exactly and devise programs and policies that will, that will work. So we want to know what works well for you. What would you like to do and how can we make that happen? So um, one example is uh, that the city council created a social justice and racial equity grant program. Uh, and we put a call out to the community. We do everything we can to make sure that um, everybody knows this program's available. And we say, tell us what you would like in, in terms of financial resources. What would you do if you had 10000 if you had $15,000? And we've gotten some really good um, applications. And I think what we see is that the, the folks that steward those dollars, they can stretch those a lot farther than we can designing some government-based program. So I think that's going to continue to be a, a point of emphasis for the city, is to figure out how to better understand what those needs are and then empower those populations to create whatever support network uh, uh, they need uh, themselves with, with the resources that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, just let me add to that. It's, you know, <clears throat> Rod mentioned, you know, starts with the leaders and here we have a council person and a city manager. And at the end of the day, that policy, that 30,000 foot view has to trickle down to be action oriented to really make a difference. And Iowa City and Johnson County are really good at that. And I'll give you an example. So, you know, when uh, Mayor Throgmorton was was at the home here and came to me one day and said, I'm talking to the people in the community uh in in a refugee and, and immigrant community and they don't know how to get hold of the police do they call 911 they, they don't really have that information sometimes they just need a question answered and we're the ones that work 24 7 we don't charge for house calls i mean we we still get out and so we came up with these language cards and i can pass these around but they're in several different languages arabic spanish um swahili and and we put them in strategic places, be it the county building or neighborhood centers. Um, so folks have that at their fingertips to say, if I have a question of the police, how do I call? And then if there's a language barrier, how do I deal with that? So the second thing we came up with was a solid policy on um, uh, limited English proficiency, uh, hearing impaired, and not just through our training, but we said, let's put it in writing to show that we have a policy here to increase communications. So the the community knows we're serious about it and that we're consistent with it. So those suggestions came from council folks, which came from the community uh, and trickled right down to us where it's action oriented and, and again, actually putting those in, into place for, for the confidence in, in what we do. So the, these conversations are, are truly something that you don't just talk philosophy. You have to take action and you have to make it digestible for the community so they are confident with you. So hats off to them having this these successful processes in place at the county and city level. Well, and we do better when we work together, too. Uh, and, you know, of late, I think we've had really good working relationships with the city of Iowa City, but also city of Corville, city of North Liberty, the school district. And so if somebody has a good idea, we're happy to borrow it. You know, we don't have to invent the wheel. Um, and we've been doing a lot of the same kind of things. So our Health and Human Services building, uh, the gentleman who staffs it speaks six languages fluently. Now, you can't always find a person like that, but mm -hmm. it's the number of times that I've run into somebody in the building who's holding some piece of paper and just looking at me and kind of giving that international, like, I don't know what to do, and I just say, hold on, follow me. And we walk over to Peter, and it never fails. Peter can 
can communicate with the person somehow. So not uh, me, that is. <laughs> I wish though. Yeah, but uh, and so it's just amazing to have a resource like that. But we had to specifically go out and find somebody like that and hire somebody like that. And so um, that was a concerted effort on our part. And, and you just you have to do things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and similarly, I think in the school district, we had the same issue, because I think there are people who have grown up in the United States their entire life, and I'm not sure the school system always completely makes sense. And so you have someone coming from a different culture, a different country, where schools are very different. I think you need someone to navigate those waters. So in our buildings, we have um, student family advocates who are social workers who help navigate that. But they don't have very much time, you know, because they, they serve an entire building, sometimes two buildings. So what we're rolling out very soon, we've hired our first one and we have two more that we're working on is um, cultural liaisons. And so we have um, our three highest um, areas are uh, Congolese, Sudanese, and Latino. So we have part-time positions because, you know, it's the funding issue is, is such that it can't. But basically it's that cultural liaison who will basically do a series of visits to families to help them understand how we operate. You know, this is how registr- e-registration, we do everything online in the computer. And we, we actually had an immigrant family last week that said, what's the internet? You know, I mean, they have, you have people who, it's so foreign to them of how systems are so familiar. So they will help explain all these things. And then similarly, they have given lovely advice and feedback to, um, and I have just one hired so far but so far she is helping teachers understand it's like okay when you say go to the library he doesn't know what that means we don't they don't have a library in their school so I think it's it's really important to bridge that gap Mm -hmm. and and understand and and ask them the people who are coming here like you know what is it that you need and then we're really trying to use those people like John Paul who have been here for a little bit who like they know what it's like at the Congo and they know what it's like here and they're the ones that can help um, bridge that so we're trying to find what we call ambassadors those people who can help us um, explain to them and give some context and some trust I mean we had we have a clinic in the schools for for families um, who don't have health insurance and so there was a, a Latino man that called our liaison and said this woman named Salome called me from the clinic. Is it okay for me to talk to her? You know, so I think there's a level of trust that you're going to have with someone who's of your culture more so than, you know, someone who looks like me. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can ask this question of um, maybe one person is is willing to field it. Um, uh, Susan and Jeff, maybe I'm looking at you guys, um, and it's kind of an unfair question. Um, oh, your favorite great. kind, right? Yeah. Oh, great. I'm glad you guys get to go That's first. Um, <laughs> we get paid the big bucks. <laughs> we've talked a lot about Iowa City itself, um, but can you speak at all to how Iowa City uh, compares to uh, other cities in Iowa? Uh, maybe we don't go too far outside uh, and say, you know, and ask about uh, other states. Um, but are there other places in the state um, that you think uh, are, are doing the kinds of things that you're describing here that have the, uh, the perspective, the outlook that leaders uh, in Iowa City have in relation to uh, refugees and immigrants? Well, it's, uh, it's really hard to say because I, I, I certainly don't know a whole lot about the city operations throughout the state. I, I, I do know that there's probably some, some good things happening, but what I can say, what makes Iowa City unique is 
Um, as a government one, we have, uh, uh, we, we really have, are fortunate to have a lot of resources. We have a human rights office and we have two staff person uh, that, that work uh, every day on, on issues of human rights. That, that allows us to make some progress that smaller cities maybe uh, can't make. Um, but probably what's more important than that is we have such an engaged community and so we can recruit people to serve on boards and commissions. We can recruit people to, to help serve nonprofit boards, people that are very driven on this issue. So whether it's government or, or nonprofits, you've got people um, all across this community that, that hold a very similar uh, value system and belief system when it comes to this topic. And, and that allows us as a community to do more. So I think we, we, we probably do more than a lot of cities because we have resources, but more importantly, I think the community does more than a lot of uh, other communities that maybe don't have that, that shared drive. And wouldn't you say too, Jeff, the community demands it of you guys too. I mean, oh. they, they mm -hmm. Very much so. Yeah, you understand that, certainly. Yes, it's a good point. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do, um, because we're, we've been uh, talking about this in class, uh, and uh, several of our readings have, uh, have touched on it, um, the, the notion of sanctuary cities. Um, obviously, uh, a highly uh, politi politicized term, um, and I think some in the room uh, might be surprised to learn that Iowa City is not uh, a sanctuary city. Uh, and Jeff, I, not to keep picking on you, um, I recall when, when we uh, chatted first about the possibility of doing uh, this, this panel, uh, you educated me on, on some things I wasn't aware of in relation to uh, sanctuary city status. Uh, I'm wondering if, if um, one of you might be willing to touch on that uh, and how the city sees itself um, respective to that term. Well, maybe I'll just offer a couple of brief comments and then the, the chief can talk about what it, what it means for, for his department. But sanctuary cities, it, it's a title. And to me, it's, it's, it's a meaningless title. We are, and our council has been very good about being upfront about our value system. And from, from day one, any time this topic comes up, these are our values. Let us be as clear as possible about our values. But what, what's important to the people um, that, that this topic impacts, our, our um, un, undocumented residents, um, is, is that our actions um, uh, are, are where they need to be. And, and that's where, um, whether it's police department or any other uh, city operation, um, we are going to carry those values all the way throughout our day-to-day -day activities. And, and so we express those values not only in rooms like this, but in community meetings, um, pancake breakfast, whatever, whenever we get a chance, we do that, and then we follow through with our actions. And I think for the, uh, um, for the immigrant uh, population here, it's less important that we call ourselves a sanctuary city than uh, it is to have our, our staff uh, uh, actually carry out um, the ideals on, on what many believe that means. And so maybe, Chief, you can talk about what it means for the police department here. Sure. So the council on a couple of occasions, as a matter of fact, did you send the web page links that Jeff had sent you for pre-reading at all? With yes, the group? yes. So I'm sure you all read all those 75 documents on there, but <laughs> in a nutshell, there was a couple of resolutions, which, and a council resolution is not a law, but it's a formal stance of the city council 
and in this case, they um, the most recent one was in 2017, where they reaffirmed um, the function of public safety in, in Iowa City. And I just want to read a, a three or four sentences out of that because it, it really sets the pace for what occurred with the Sanctuary City label. Mm -hmm. um, so. You know, they do the whereas, and then therefore, they said, except as necessary for public safety as, as determined by the police chief or his designee, um, or as otherwise required by law, uh, either state or federal law, the Iowa City Police Department shall not undertake any law enforcement action for the purpose of detecting the presence of undocumented persons or devote any public resources to the enforcement of federal immigration law. So, that makes good sense. We're gonna comply with the law, but we're gonna take care of public safety and take care of the very folks that are standing on our soil because the Constitution says that. It doesn't say uh, the Constitution applies to just documented people that were born here. It says if you're on our soil, undocumented, documented, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your legal status, you're protected by the Constitution and we're sworn as police officers to uphold that. And they reaffirm that role. But that also got the attention of some lawmakers back a couple years ago, and, and they started what was called SF-481, uh, the Sanctuary City Bill for the state of Iowa. And basically what they said was, who are you as police chief to decide when you're going to help immigration and when you're going to enforce some of these laws? Um, that's ridiculous. Let's, let's have a state law that, that intervenes with that and, and prohibits that. And I testified in front of a subcommittee at the state capitol and said, you know, the, the, the proposal you have here doesn't change what we do. We comply with the law. As a matter of fact, the council had it in writing and in form of a formal resolution. We comply with all state and federal laws regarding immigration. We have an excellent working relationship with our federal partners, FBI, DEA, U.S. Attorney's Office, and ICE, immigration, because at any given time, we may have to, to work with those folks for, for certain things. But all of us in, in law enforcement know our roles. The FBI knows what their job is and they do it well. DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, knows their job and they do it well. And we know our job and we do it well and we play well in the sandbox together. That's never been broken. So, um, you know, I testified to that and said, you know, at the end of the day, I have to build trust and legitimacy with everybody in my community so they're comfortable calling us and reporting crimes. Can you imagine thinking that there's an ulterior motive, there's a secondary enforcement action if you call and say that you're a victim of sexual assault? How traumatic is that to the person, to the community, and the, 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 the entire fabric of this, this state and nation? So, you know, as police chiefs, we, we make sure to, to reinforce that that's, that's not our role. Um, Immigration enforcement is, is a civil action. It's an administrative rule. It's not in the criminal code. It's like I would arrest you for cheating on your taxes. I don't have that authority. That's the IRS. Um, so to, to think that we should take on the, the front line of immigration enforcement is ludicrous. Number one, I don't have the, the authority to do that, um, but it's also not our role. There, there's an agency that does that, and they know their role, and they do it well. It's up to them. That's not our role. So we, we tried to reinforce that. They came out with the law. And at the end of the day, the law said, well, you can't prohibit your officers from uh, arresting somebody and, and asking their immigration status. Uh, and we don't prohibit that. We comply with the law. What we do train our officers to do and remind them is that it really doesn't serve a purpose on where the person's from. We really don't care. At the end of the day, we have to make that arrest. We make the arrest, you know, to reduce crime and violent crime 
Um, but asking their immigration status gets us nowhere. So the officers, by desire to do a good job and treat everybody equally and, and achieve the trust that we're trying to earn with the entire community, so you'll call us and report crimes, it's so important so we can protect you, they don't ask that. So they, they, they're doing it right. The law hasn't changed anything at all. They, 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 they did the sanctuary city you know, state law, the 481, it didn't change anything. So at the end of the day, uh, we're still complying with the law. We always have, and we always will. Um, and I think that that's an important, you know, piece to put in there. Um, again, like Jeff said, the sanctuary city is is not a legal designation or anything else. It's a, it's it's a it's a term that gets thrown out there, um, but it doesn't have a lot of meaning behind it. Yeah, I would say from the city council's perspective, when we were debating this, one of the things that we talked about was the fact that. There is no technical definition of what is a sanctuary city. So what what would it mean if we officially called ourselves a sanctuary city? Because there's no specific definition of what that means. Secondly, um, I think we made a very conscious decision because of the the politics and the potential ramifications of action from the state and or the federal government to not use that terminology but to express our values and how we believe people should be treated and how we want our staff to treat people, et cetera. Um, and as Jeff said, you know, we, we promote that all the time and felt that we could do more good by promoting that than by sticking a certain name, um, tagging ourselves with a certain name that one, doesn't have a specific definition and two, could bring us a lot of negative attention from other governmental agencies. One of the things that we did together, the governments oh, yes. up here, yep. uh, was the community ID program a few years ago. Um, so this is an example of what one looks like. And I think the people originally who had this idea went to the city of Iowa City first and said, you know, you should do this. And as it turned out, it really people don't just stay in Iowa City. You know, they, mm -hmm. uh, for one thing, a lot of the mobile home parks are outside of the city limits. You might work in Coralville but live in Iowa City or vice versa or North Liberty. And so we realized we needed to do something a little broader so the county actually administers it. But it, it came about um, largely because of what Jody talked about. We had lots of uh, examples. I heard from a, a, he's not a sheriff's deputy anymore, but a gentleman who used to be a sheriff's deputy who came across a woman who'd clearly been beaten. She had a bloody face, you know, um, and she would not, simply would not talk to him about what had happened because clearly there was some sort of concern for either her or somebody in her house about immigration status. So she just wasn't gonna talk. And, and so that means, you know, there are people who are victims that don't get justice when they're afraid of that kind of thing. And, and so, uh, hopefully this card has helped a little bit to build some of that trust between law enforcement uh, that, that Jody has talked about. And, you know, I wish it was going bigger than it is. I think we've got something like 1,100 of them out there. I wish, I wish we had twice that many, but we don't. So you can spread the word if you'd like. Would you tell us a little bit more, uh, Rod, about uh, the card and uh, how one would get it and what one can do with it? Um, yeah, all you have to do is come down to the county building uh, during business hours and ask for it. Um, there have been some occasions where we've done some outreach with it and taken it out to a couple of the schools and, a, and uh, 
uh, Center for Worker Justice and a couple places like that. But typically, you just come down to the county building during business hours. And uh, I think it's, it's about 10 bucks. I don't know exactly how much it costs. But um, you get your photo taken. You have to provide information. So you have to provide um, <clears throat> some kind of documentation of who you are. But it's not necessarily the same things that you would need to get, like, a driver's license in America. That's what's tripping a lot of people up. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, we also have a lot of people who walk around with their passports, which isn't a very safe right. thing to do. And so this way you could keep your passport safely at home and, and just have this ID. Um, banks take it, pharmacies, any place where you might have to, to show ID. Um, pretty much uses it. You can't use it for alcohol or cigarettes, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, just about everything else. Mm -hmm. This seems like a, a great partnership with uh, certainly some of the, the offices, departments represented at this table. Would you mind um, sharing with us uh, some other examples of how uh, you all here at this table or um, with others uh, that you can cite uh, have collaborated uh, to make Iowa City a more um, uh, welcoming and inviting place uh, for folks, particularly those uh, international newcomers, uh, to live. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, too, about the schools uh, and what partnerships uh, you've had in the area. Uh and it, it's it's all about partners, honestly. And I yeah. think um, one of the things that has been really beneficial is there's a, um, a coalition of people who are trying to help refugees and immigrants. And so all of the entities up here have been represented in the um, Refugee Alliance. And I think because it's there's it's so scattered, we have so many different cultures represented and so many different organizations that it's important to try to put some kind of organization to that. So we try to have members of that group, John Paul is um, attending that, as well as other immigrant groups, the Sudanese Association and um, uh, some of our AmeriCorps who are from different cultures, to just talk about what are the resources, what are issues, what can we do. Um, Mayor Throgmorton was involved with that quite a bit, um, Lynette Jacoby from the county. So I think that kind of coordination is really important, and especially when you have voices of the immigrants there, um, it's critical. Other partnerships, uh, I think, sometimes just meeting some of the basic needs that we see. Because um, I think when your earlier question, how friendly are we, I think the will is there. It's just there's the way. And I think when you have mm. bad public policy at a federal level, you have families in pretty desperate situations that we are just trying to pull together as best we can to meet some basic needs. Um, mm -hmm. And the Refugee Alliance that you mentioned uh, meets monthly mm -hmm. uh, at Iowa City Compassion. Right. And uh, I, I've been myself uh, and seems to be um, a, a really great outlet for those to, uh, to learn more about the issues uh, that matter, that, I mean, that, that truly matter. Conversations do happen there, and folks are able to. I think more recently they've had, um, they've invited folks to give presentations on various topics. For example, uh, uh, when I was there um, in December, uh, there was a uh, presentation given about transportation uh, in the area and how to uh, increase uh, accommodations 
uh, for folks who rely on uh, public right. transportation. I think many of us take for granted the fact that, um, you know, we get around by our personal vehicle. Well, that's simply not the case uh, for many others. Um, and this, uh, uh, I don't recall how long ago it was started, but seems to be a very good forum uh, for discussion uh, of these kinds of topics. Well, and on that, that's another good example. So it was Kelly, who works for the county, that did the presentation on transportation. So she's going to work with my cultural liaison to take a group of Latino families and teach them how to ride the bus. Because mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's a bus, but then understanding the schedule and, and sure. being able to figure all of that out is important. The other thing about the Alliance is that sometimes it's just really hard for people with inflexible work schedules to be there. So we post it um, on the website, and so we videotape um, the session. So then if you weren't able to attend the meeting, you can at least watch it. Mm -hmm. So. Um. And Kelly, who you mentioned, is a county employee, but um, is also jointly funded by several um, was, entities oh, uh, as well. Right. So there's a yeah. collaboration behind the collaboration. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of distinguish a couple <clears throat> of things. And we've, we, we've talked about them. Susan mentioned uh, earlier the support, the partnership with Kirkwood on the, on the ESL uh, classes. That's important. At uh, your next council meeting, you don't know this yet, but uh, you'll be <laughs> considering a, a uh, approval of a grant uh, for the Sudanese Community Center as part of the next round of social justice and racial equity grants. So there are some direct collaborations like that, but then there's also uh, collaborations that try to just express uh, our values, again, as a welcoming community. So when you walk downtown uh, at certain times of the year, you'll see uh, welcome banners uh, that, that may be in different languages or that represent uh, different cultures uh, that, that we find here in Iowa City. That's a partnership between the University of Iowa and the downtown district in the city. When we were redesigning our downtown, uh, we intentionally created um, our iconic Iowa City signs, our new signs to have multiple languages to express welcome uh, to, the, to, to the many different people uh, that call Iowa City home. Again, that was a partnership um, uh, with a number of, of folks and uh, a direct reflection of some of the feedback we've received from the public and the values that our city council um, has outwardly expressed. From a law enforcement perspective, the partners are, are absolutely everything. So we handle that a couple different ways. We um, started a position uh, about three or four years ago called a community outreach assistant. And they work with our community policing officers out of that unit. But this is a civilian position, um, non-uniformed and, and doesn't carry a gun. Um, but their job is to reach out to the community in an environment that's not an enforcement action. It's actually we seek out groups one-on-one, uh, -on -one, you know, to, to, to talk to them and tell us about resources available and, and tell them um, about, especially if you're a victim of a crime, what resources are there. Uh, it used to be Henry Harper, now it's Daisy Torres, and they do a really nice job of, of uh, dealing with, with issues within the immigrant community, particularly most recently is, is uh, drugs, you know. Um, you know, they've, they've moved here with their teenage son or daughter, and, and now that maybe their, their child is into something that, that they wouldn't have maybe had to handle in their own country, and is this the American way? Is this, is there, what, what do I do, you know? And talk about being lost as a, a person born and raised here, come to another country and try to deal with that, You're, you know, it's a double whammy for them. And so we're trying to make sure we're connecting with them and helping them before the problem becomes more severe. 
Um, one of the biggest things too is is human trafficking. Um, you know, we don't see a lot of it in Iowa City, where um, you know, Midwest medium-sized town. Uh, but can it occur here? Certainly, it, yes, it can and it does. Um, as a matter of fact, we just finished up a, a federal case where we arrested six individuals for human trafficking um, that was occurring over a, a, a two-year period. Um, and so we've really worked with advocacy groups. So there's trust, number one, in reporting it, but knowing that they're going to be fully supported. Um, DVIP, um, RVAP, or the, the domestic violence and sexual assault advocacies, but also uh, Monsoon, which um, supports the Asian and Pacific Islanders, and then NISA, which supports the African community. Um, so they, you know, like you mentioned earlier, you know, it's someone that, that knows me and, and knows my culture that, can, that I can, can talk to. I will tell you three years ago, there was a little little communication gap even between our advocates and the police department because they have a job to do and, and they have a set of rules they have to go by and information sharing and uh, that has to be limited and so do we. How do you connect that and how do we work together? So the last three years we've spent a lot of time focusing on that and earning each other's trust and knowing each other's jobs and limitations so we don't step on each other and because at the end who would suffer? The, the victim. And we have grown tenfold and, and really have done a nice job um, connecting with those agencies so the one that benefits is the victim and they feel supported throughout the entire incident um, and don't feel abandoned. So those kind of partnerships, especially with the immigrant community, has been so important. Mm -hmm. And it really sounds like there's a lot of intentionality uh, behind these these partnerships. Uh, and it, it's it's really... Uh, it's really great. It's really exciting to, to hear, but also reassuring that at least uh, if I'm understanding correctly, what all of you are saying is that um, individuals in the community um, who are experts uh, of their own experience, of their own understandings of the world in which they live and uh, how they add value to uh, the Iowa City community, their, uh, their word, uh, their ideas are being taken up uh, seriously and thoughtfully and are being, it sounds to me, like uh, turned into uh, real action and policy, uh, which uh, I think goes to what you were saying, Jeff, about having uh, the, the importance of um, talking about our values, about our values leading. Uh, would you all agree with that assessment? I would. Yeah, that's that's really encouraging to hear. There are challenges though with that too. Uh -huh. Will you tell you us know, about those? Um, well, some of the people up here will know the situation I'm talking about, but um, for example, there are sometimes pieces of um, <clears throat> um, religious teachings that were law where people came from, mm. and they are not law in the United States. And as a matter of fact, are expressly prohibited by U.S. law. And so uh, sometimes people feel like that's interfering with, for example, their ability to parent children. Um, you know, well, this is how we could do it, where I came from, and, and now you're telling me in the United States I can't do that? It's like, yeah, we're telling you you, you can't do that. So um, there, there have been, I've certainly heard of a number of things like that over time that... Um, um, you know, as much as you as much as you um, want to uh, 
allow folks to to bring their culture with them there are certain things that that don't come with and you know Jody talked about the Constitution applying to everybody once they're here and and I think that's just an example mm-hmm yeah I just have an example of that. Yeah. I was We were doing a focus group with a group of immigrants, and they said, so when my kids have bruises, um, we don't want you to call the Department of Human Services. It's like, we have to do that. You know, and we had to explain, like, there are different guidelines here, you know, and, and different um, expectations for um, how you parent your child, you know. And so it was a good discussion, but, again, that's where we need the cultural liaison to say. And I think the other example is sometimes... Um, uh, even some harassment issues um, with some of the teens and you know how boys and girls treat each other so mm -hmm. so there's just some cultural norms that that we have some standards that that um, need to be followed here and 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 some context and some explaining of why that is way, the way it is so. and I think the key is to have those conversations when things are good don't wait right. something happens. <laughs> um, totally. i don't know if, yeah. if anybody's heard of orville townsend but orville's one of our uh local residents here and this guy's full of wisdom and so every time he talks i'm on the edge of my seat but one of the things he says often is you know we're putting things in place while things are good don't wait till it's bad so don't be offended if we're everything seems perfect but yet we're still trying to, to fix mm -hmm. it more because that's when you should fix it. That's when you have to put things in place. Don't wait till something goes south. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, these kind of conversations need to be had in a good, positive environment um, and, and not, not wait until someone's on the receiving end of something trying to figure to it out. To create the understanding. Yeah. yeah, create that understanding up front, and it's a, uh, it's a little more digestible at that point. Again, uh, a, a very reassuring comment. Um, because it's suggestive of more intentionality. Uh, I think oftentimes uh, people can be um, reactive, um, responsive perhaps, but reactive. Um, but being proactive is, is really necessary. And, and, you know, given our conversation today, we can see how, I mean, with the, the number of different areas that we've covered, uh, the necessity as a community to become the kind of community it wants to be, it necessitates uh, that intentionality. Uh, and that again goes back to what kind of values does a place want to have. Um, are there any other uh, particular challenges uh, of doing this kind of work that, that come to mind to anybody? I think one of the things that, and this is actually another partner, it's uh, the University of Iowa Public Health is working on a project um, for mental health services. Mm -hmm. Because in many cultures, um, <clears throat> mental health is is something that is you just don't seek treatment for. We have a very Western way of thinking about seeking yeah. mental health. And so um, I think that many of our immigrants and refugees have seen some really horrible trauma. Mm -hmm. but. Um, our system of how you address that trauma is much different than what they're accustomed to. So public health has got this brilliant program that they're rolling out where you train people, um, not as mental health professionals, but just as, an, as a low intensity intervention to help people um, be able to manage some of the um, trauma that they've seen. So I'm excited about that, but that's been a huge challenge I would say mm -hmm. yeah, thank I, think, you. I think there's also a piece that's worth noting that um, um, th I think the conversation tends to probably focus on people who come to the United States or come to this community with a lot of need because 
I mean, part of why we're all up here is we're trying to provide for people with who have needs. Um, but we've also got a lot of immigrants that come um, here, um, particularly I'm thinking of like North and South Asians who are doing fabulously well. You know, they've been recruited here by the university, mm -hmm. um, either to be students or, or, or uh, professionals. And, um, you know, they're, they're buying expensive homes and expensive cars and doing great in this community um, from a financial perspective. There's not anything that we necessarily have to do in terms of a, a human need. Uh, but I still think we have work to do just in terms of connecting everybody. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not always just about, you know, you don't have money. I think sometimes we still have uh, gaps there that I'd like to see us try to do a better job of, of right filling in even with folks who don't necessarily quote-unquote need anything from us. Mm -hmm. That sort of leads me to my final question which is uh, what are some good ways for individuals in the community uh, including those uh, sitting in our audience today to get involved in welcoming and supporting uh, new uh, and recently settled Iowans? What ideas might you offer all of you? Well I would I guess my first suggestion would be, you know, doing some research on what kind of nonprofits are out there and what they're doing. I mean, you talk about the Refugee Alliance, um, and then you talk about that being kind of an organization of organizations. So what are those sub-organizations do, and what's their mission, and who are they working with, and where do your interests and skills and time, you know, abilities fit within um, any of those others. I don't know how much United Way has on their website for volunteer opportunities, I'm not sure, um, but I would say certainly if you have any um, second language abilities, <laughs> there's all kinds of people. Come see me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's all kinds of people, uh, yeah, organizations mm -hmm. that can use you if you're proficient in something other than English, so. Mm -hmm. I'll be a little more superficial than that. Um, learn about other cultures. Be sensitive to, to the habits and the customs. You know, shaking the hand of a female in some countries is considered rude. And, and so have some upfront knowledge about that and then understand their plight. Um, the fact that maybe they're not looking at you in the eye doesn't mean that they're rude or, or condescending. Maybe that's their culture. So, um, you know, be sensitive to that, find out that information up front, um, and be in a position to, to offer the hand to say, can, can I help you, you know, let me help direct you somewhere, um, be it, you know, an agency you're aware of or or just simply being nice. But, um, you know, our, our, culture, our country's young people are in better shape than when I was growing up. They're, they're certainly more sensitive to these issues, and that's a good thing. So continue in that direction. That, that's my advice. Mm-hmm. Others? Advice for... F food is good. <laughs> food, food is a really good way to bridge. In what uh, way? Oh, well, it's just a great way to bridge different cultures. You know, every, everybody loves food, and so uh, that's just a great way to, to learn about each other's when you sit down and, and share food. Uh, okay. Um, Mitch, you have the microphone. We're wondering if anybody has questions uh, for our panelists. Yes, sir. And if you, if you, would, uh, if you would introduce yourself as yeah. well. First of all, thank you for your insights. Uh, I came from Des Moines. I don't have a question, 
but I have just uh, an extension of partnership and possible collaboration. Uh, my name is Mark Suchesca, and I serve as the Bureau Chief for Refugee Services in Moines, Iowa, as well as the State Refugee Coordinator for Iowa. So if there are ways that we can partner uh, to help some communities yes. here in Iowa, we are <laughs> a statewide agency, and in my role as State Refugee Coordinator for Iowa, we also touch every region of Iowa where there are refugees. Do you have some business cards? I, I was just okay. going to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. I reached out to uh, to Mark a couple of weeks ago, uh, and uh, really appreciate that he was able to come uh, from Des Moines uh, to hear our conversation today. Um, obviously, we've talked a lot about partnership, um, and I had a feeling that there would be some some good connections to make. Are we yeah. keeping up with Des Moines? We doing all right? You're getting there. <laughs> Actually, no, I, I, was, I, I studied in, uh, in Iowa City, um, Iowa City. I came um, as a refugee to this country, so Iowa City has always been, the state of Iowa historically has been a welcoming state. Excellent. Um, the early 70s, mm -hmm. refugee resettlement to where we are now. I know the climate has drastically changed, but I guess if there is a silver lining in anything, that would be that now is the time to sort of revamp what we have in place um, to strengthen the partnerships that we have across the state to really uh, focus on the communities that are already here and then potentially prepare for what's to come in November um, to see how that will also change the climate of refugee resettlement, but also uh, immigration as well. Um, across the state, I think things are going very well. Each community, as you alluded to, is unique and they have their own strengths. But with those strengths also come opportunities of growth and uh, collaboration. So definitely looking forward to, to what's to come. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, questions in the room? I'm looking especially at my students who came prepared to ask lots of really great questions. Yeah. Uh, Mitch, will you share the microphone? It might be good for the audio to pick that up too. Thanks. Um, I just had a question about the ESL classes that you guys were talking about throughout the conversation. Um, you mentioned that you partnered with Kirkwood, but are those only on the Kirkwood campus or um, are they held like throughout the city? Because I know transportation is a big issue for a lot of immigrants and refugees. Yeah, they're, they're going to be looking at uh, multiple locations to, to host those classes. And, and what's really neat about this program is it's tied directly into job training. So what they try to do is identify uh, employers to work with and oftentimes uh, they'll actually do the the classes within that work site so if you can imagine a manufacturing factory they will bring in uh, folks that do not speak english and they will may work three hours on the line and then take three hours of classes and if you can get through say three four five months to where they can become proficient enough speaking uh, to to advance in that job then they kind of get promoted out of that entry-level role. So it's really, uh, it's not your traditional ESL type of program. It's very specific to um, equipping uh, adults uh, to enter the workforce. So I think what Kirkwood's out doing right now is trying to find those employer partners uh, because there are a lot of people looking for employees right now, and we have a lot of talent sitting here. We just have this this one barrier uh, that, that's that's massive right now. So this program's pretty unique, trying to, to to remove that barrier and help both the business community and the immigrant community. Is there a course fee for this program? I don't recall. I, 
I don't know. Kirkwood, the, I, those classes are free are right they? now. They adult okay. ed, yeah. Okay. Is there a question over here? So we've touched on how federal law affects the way you do your jobs regarding immigrants, but how does state law affect it? So uh, the, really the, the biggest piece of the state law is that SF-481, Senate File 481, that, that um, tried to lay out you know, a game plan and um, it, it really hasn't affected us. I'm sure there's some agencies out there that, that it did affect. We already had policies in place, which it mandated. We already had everything in place, so we were a little bit ahead of the curve on that. Um, unfortunately, for me, for law enforcement, the, the policy, I'm sorry, the state law tried to set us back a little bit. And, uh, you know, if you're good at what you do and, and you've got everything in place and, um, and can balance law enforcement and, and taking care of the community, everybody in the community, then it's, it's not too, too tough of a job uh, to, to still comply with state law. So not a lot of impact there. <clears throat> I think, you know, having systems in place, other um, laws in place for um, victims of crime, I was really good at that. And so there's, there are some positive laws out there. I don't want to just talk about 481, but there's some things that have aided us um, in, in enhance uh, advocacy groups and social services so there there's there's stuff in place for everybody um, so there's some good laws too if I could just add to that real quick when it comes to 481 um, as the chief mentioned not a real practical impact on our operations our operations continued as they always have uh, but the rhetoric behind the law and the attention that that law got and the way it was um, uh, promoted throughout the state um, act, uh, very much set us back with, with the immigrant community. Um, we had to reestablish those connections. We had to try to reassure folks that this law is not going to change anything. And um, that was hard to do. And I don't, you know, I, candidly, I don't know if we've overcome that yet. Uh, that's, a, that's a constant work in progress. And uh, we see that frequently. We'll make strides, and then there'll be some state and some national news that set us back, and then we make strides, and it seems, like, at least for the last several years, it's been a, it's been a push-pull that's been difficult. So it's, it's not always the text of the, the law that, that hurts. It's the, it's the rhetoric that goes with it. And, and I'll, I'll put a little definition behind the rhetoric side. We've seen federal vehicles pulling to town to get a, a bagel downtown, and my phone rings. What's ICE doing here? Why are they in town? Is there a big raid going on? I'm just getting a bagel. Um, that's how scared folks are, um, and that's real. So um, the, yeah, this law did, did set us back. Um, I had a couple phone calls right after the law passed that said, well, are you guys ICE now? No, nope, no, we're not, and we're not going to be. So we've, we've got a ways to go. It, it caused some issues, unfortunately. Out of uh, curiosity, Chief, um, within uh, the police department, I'm wondering um, what kind of training or uh, conversation uh, has there been with officers who are, um, you know, first responders who are out in the community having interactions with folks or, or not, um, because individuals may be <laughs> afraid. Um, but what sort of, um, how have you framed this very complicated issue uh, for those officers doing the daily work? So uh, training, training, training. Uh, yeah. 
for example, in 2016, the, the department did a total of 200 hours, uh, not an individual, but a total of 200 hours of training in cultural competency and implicit bias and things of that nature. And the year I got here in 17, we moved that up to 1,100 hours. Uh, that's how much emphasis we put on it, and that's how important it is. And we continue in that direction. Um, you can never get enough of it. You, you know, we measure disproportionality in, in uh, minority contacts for traffic stops. Uh, and have for the last you know 15 20 years uh, we continue to be our hardest critic and grade ourselves um, but if you let up off that gas pedal and you don't continually remind officers you got a job to do we want you to use your discretion you're out there you're well trained you're well paid you're well educated get the job done but remember there's a, a, a better way to police uh, every single officer that I have working here and there's 86 of them uh, are good officers that work hard and want to do a good job, but they're only as good as their training and only as good as their expectations. And so we constantly remind them of that, give them the freedom to do their job, but never forget uh, getting better. And they are so well received with that and, and they, they really do a nice job. So that's, that's important, but a lot of training. I think that's a good lesson for us all actually. Um, that much uh, cultural, cultural uh, confidence training, um, implicit bias training uh, is, as you aptly point out, good for uh, law enforcement officers, but it's also good for all of us. And when I asked before about things that we uh, could all be doing, uh, certainly uh, volunteering our time, um, maybe making donations, um, getting educated uh, seems to me to be crucial as well, and the university has lots of those kinds of opportunities, particularly for students, uh, to increase their cultural competence uh, and uh, to learn more about implicit bias. We can't all think, um, you know, we've uh, lived or studied abroad. We all uh, live in a um, forward-thinking community, so uh, we've done it. Uh, it seems to be a really uh, important sort of a standard for all of us. I'm really happy to hear that that's happening. Any other questions? We have time for maybe one more, yeah, Anai? Um, so this is about the identification cards. Uh, so say if someone's undocumented, what kind of documents do you need to get a card? You know, there's a long list and it depends upon where you're from and what's available. Um, so really you can, you can call and ask or you can go down there and ask. I think there's quite a bit of information available on the website, uh, but it sort of depends on what documents are, are available. That was a quick one. Uh, yes, ma'am. Mitch, will you please uh, bring over the mic? Thank you. Earlier it was mentioned that there's some limited knowledge of technology and I think the city and maybe even the county requires uploading a resume online to even apply for a job and you were just saying you know you can look online to find what's needed for a community ID card. How's that accessible? Well yeah I mean that's a, that's a problem I suppose still for a lot of folks. There you know there are resources out there the library and you can certainly like I said you can also come down. People will be happy to speak in person with you um, over the phone. 
Call Peter. Anything works. We we try as well. So when we're recruiting the positions, one, it's it's uh, making sure that the recruitments are are um, broadcasted widely. And then for those that need assistance, uh, we ask them to come here, and we'll actually have staff walk them through the online program. And you know, the library, as uh, Rod said, uh, there's computers available. They also have programs to help you if you need to put together a resume. Uh, we try to offer those types of assistant programs as well. And in our conversations with Kirkwood, um, computer literacy was one of the things that we talked about. And if we can combine that with the English classes, because it's it's a huge barrier um, and, and I think that they're addressing that in some of their curriculum as well. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay, very good. Um, so again, I would like to uh, thank our five panelists for participating today for uh, to City Hall for hosting us. Uh, and to uh, News Channel 4 for recording uh, today's panel and the Dan Iowan and the Gazette uh, for covering uh, our discussion. Uh, I'll end by saying that if you're interested in hearing more uh, about the community-engaged learning with refugees and immigrants in Iowa course, um, I encourage you to join me at the Iowa City Foreign Relations Luncheon on Wednesday, the 20th of May at noon. I'll be giving a talk there on how the course came together, uh, how it went, uh, what my students and I learned, uh, and perhaps most importantly, what the Refugee and Immigrant Association tells us was most beneficial to them. Uh, it is a uh, you know semester-long course uh, in which we are trying to do our best, as I noted before, to become trusted advisors. And by May, uh, we'll, we'll know how things have, have shaped up uh, and what, in what ways we were able to be of service to the Refugee and Immigrant Association. I would encourage you also to check them out uh, and to, to, to give them a good look. They are, um, I'll give them a plug because I'm on the board and because I have the microphone at the moment. Um, Jean-Paul uh, Mugemuzi uh, and his team are really incredible individuals, refugees themselves, who are making Iowa City uh, a much better place and are doing so themselves in service to others uh, who come here to Iowa City, doing the hard work of making a, a better life for themselves um, without a full-time staff and without uh, reliable funding um, to make a better life for uh, others in Iowa City. Their center is on uh, Gilbert uh, Street and uh, it's, um, it's, it's really an admirable uh, organization and we're, as a class, very fortunate to be partnering with them. So I encourage you to um, to give them a good look too, and to support them in ways if you're able. Uh, again, thank you all very much uh, for being a part of the panel, and thank you all for joining us.